0: Uh, well, good morning again. Um, if you're new to Vintage, uh, my name's Blake, and I am the worship pastor here. And uh, every now and then, I also have the privilege of of preaching as well. Um, and particularly this summer, we are going uh, through a summer sermon series. And as has been our tradition over the past several years, um, we kind of give Bryce a bit of a break from, from preaching every Sunday during that summer series. Uh, we've had a couple of guests come in, Dr. Miller and uh, Josh Kubler last week, and then our leadership team has also had the opportunity to preach. So now it's, uh, now it's my turn. Uh, this I haven't preached in this series yet this summer. I'm going to get this straight at some point. It's always a joy and a privilege uh, for me to get to share from God's Word with you, specifically this sort of sharing, the sort of public declaration of the Word preaching. Um, and it's a joy and a privilege to do that with you uh, specifically, my, my church family, because um, I love you guys, and I love when we get to, get to be together, and I love to get to open the Word Together today, what a joy it has been uh, this summer, I know for me, and I hope for you to sort of rekindle a love and appreciation for the book of Psalms that we've been going through together. This ancient prayer book of of poetry and of hymns and of reflections on who God is and uh, what he has done, what what he has yet to do, and how God is with us. In every season of our lives, every emotion that we might experience, God is, is with us. You know, dwelling on this book this summer has been a needed reminder for me and I, and I hope for you as well that there is, there is no emotion that is outside of God's reign and rule in us, right? There is no facet of our lives, no thing that we can go through, no part of the human experience that we can't see reflected in the book of Psalms. And that means that for us, there is no prohibition on expressing our raw and real emotions before God, right? As Stephen uh, pointed out in, uh, a few weeks ago, we don't have to be like you know the, the fake Mr. Rogers that he talked about, the guy who says, just put on a smile, right? The, the, the Bible gives us permission to be raw and real and honest about how we feel. But then the Psalms continually remind us uh, that whatever life throws at us, no matter what we are going through, that God is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer and our refuge and our greatest treasure. So we're, even though we're allowed to have those, uh, experience those emotions and express them to God, the Psalms repeatedly remind us that we are to be pointed to the hope that is the gospel of Christ. And so I hope that's been true for you as you've Hopefully, read a lot of the Psalms this summer as we've we've preached through these Psalms, and as I have the opportunity today to preach this penultimate uh, sermon of the of the series, so that we can take solace in the Psalms. Psalms like uh, Psalm one twenty one. It says, "I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved." He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. I'm reminded of the, of the children's prayer that we sometimes... Uh, You know, here some parents teach their kids, you know, now lay, lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. We don't really have to ask God to keep us. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God is our keeper. We just need to rest and take solace in knowing that he is the one who keeps us. What a great joy and great hope we have in the Lord, our maker what great comfort we can find in this book of Psalms, his inspired prayer book, to continually point us to him over and over again, no matter what season of life we're in. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. And I've, I've told Lindsay, I'm... I've been a little I've been a little worried about about this because I don't want this to be merely an an academic sermon, you know, where I where I say, "Hey guys, look, the Psalms inspired the New Testament," and let me show you how, how it that happened, you know, like uh, and I have split this up into some categories. I don't want this just to be a bunch of proof text for me to prove a concept to you, um, but. I got a lot of scripture, and so even if the content I have uh, might be somewhat academic, maybe heady, a little dry, the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I hope that by uh, continually going back to scripture, back to scripture, back to scripture today, that God's word will penetrate your heart and do some transformative work on your life today. Uh, So let's pray together to ask God to do that, and then we'll dive in. God, we thank you for your word. God, that you, though you reveal yourself to us in the things that you have made, Lord, so much so that when we see them, we can't deny your eternal attributes, so we are without excuse. God, thank you that you also reveal yourself to us through your inspired word. And God, that every time we open its pages or however we encounter it, God, that we find you. God, thank you that your word is living and active, Lord, and that you open our eyes to understand it by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we plead with you to do that for us today. God, open our hearts, Lord, for your word has the power to transform us. God, as we look at how your word tells one cohesive narrative of redemption through your Son, God, would you let Jesus be proclaimed above it all? God, let your Holy Spirit work on our hearts today as we dive into your word. May you be glorified through it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I'm honored to get to share with you guys this uh, this penultimate Psalm sermon series sermon with you guys. Um, and, you know, you may not pay much attention to things like this, the little graphics that I put together or that sometimes we have other people put together uh, for our sermon series. Um, but I didn't want to to miss out the opportunity to explain to you what's going on here because I'm not nearly as artistic as Stephen, so I'm not building a whole sermon on a, on a painting. I'm not nearly uh, that cool. I mean, it was built on the Word, but, you know, that was, I really, that was good. Um, yeah, very artistic. But uh, so, so I was trying to find something uh, relevant to the Psalms for this little series graphic that, you know, we just like to have those. Uh, it's not that important. And I found this painting by Monet. Um and as you can see, oh can you can you go back to that for me, Morgan? Not that one. The other way. That was not a painting by a Monet. We'll get there in just a minute. So this painting by Monet, you can see there's a weeping willow tree right here, right? And there's a there's a stream and there's some some lily pads and you can kind of kind of tell what's going on there, and I thought this kind of evoked the imagery of Psalm one, which is where Stephen kind of started us out at a few weeks ago. You know, Psalm one talks about the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands uh, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord, right? And he meditates on the law of God day and night. And that Psalm one talks about how that delight is like uh, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season; its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And so I thought uh, invoking that imagery of this tree planted by water was good. And then also the tree is a, is a weeping willow, which sort of evokes this imagery of, of lament, right? And we talked about lament. Um, so that's why we went with this painting. Um, nothing, you know, too groundbreaking there. And it's in the public domain, so we can use it since it's Monet. Um, we really just kind of wanted to help capture those ideas. But originally, and Stephen might not want me to tell this, but I'm going to anyway since I have the microphone. Uh, Stephen created a lot cooler sermon series graphic uh, for this uh, sermon series. He found this really neat painting uh, by a Jewish artist who uh, painted the, the Hebrew text of Psalm 44. And it was, it was really cool looking. Um, it's not in the public domain. So we asked for permission to use it. Um, and when Stephen reached out to the artist of that painting, uh, she asked that we not use it um, because, again, she is apparently a, a practicing Jew, and she didn't want to endorse or participate in use of Judaism-related works for the purposes of promoting Christianity, which is definitely understandable, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not dogging on her, and if she listens to this, um, again, I, 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 that's absolutely her right as an artist. Um, and it makes sense. It's understandable that she didn't want... You know, that, that uh, psalm painting to be used in a, in a Christian church, but also found it sort of sadly ironic, because, as we talked about last week, the psalms don't lack Jesus. Jesus is all over the thing, right He's the center of the whole Bible. And of course, the eyes of her heart haven't been opened to see Jesus as the, the suffering servant of Psalm 22, or as that great high priest that we sang of a moment ago. If only the eyes of our hearts have been opened, though, and hopefully they have for most of us here today, then we can see every part of Scripture through the lens of the gospel of Christ. And we see Jesus in the Psalms, and we see how that points to uh, what he did uh, for us in the New Testament. And last week we looked at that specifically uh, when Josh Kubler, our guest preacher, showed us how the Psalms point to Jesus, and specifically how a lot of the Psalms, specifically point to his coming, then to his crucifixion, which is was, which was really cool when you think about Psalm 22 and the piercing of the hands and feet and how crucifixion didn't even exist yet, which is, which is amazing that God is that uh, sovereign over it all. And then the Psalms point to the establishment of the everlasting kingdom of Christ. And so today I want to preach sort of a, a complementary sermon to, to Josh's sermon from last week. And that's not meant to imply that Josh's sermon was lacking in any way, but basically he took the Psalms and show how they point to Jesus in the New Testament. What I want to do today is look at the New Testament and show how they are then shaped by the Psalms. We're kind of looking looking back, if you will. Um, and we're going to look at how the Psalms shaped the doctrine of the followers of the New Testament church uh, and how it shaped the authors of the New Testament themselves. <clears throat> but first I want, to, I want to tell you a few things about how influential the Psalms are uh, in the New Testament. So, Do you know what book is quoted most frequently from the Old Testament in the New? It's the book of Psalms, right? Uh, It's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And depending on how you count, because, you know, there are direct quotations and there's also allusions and there's also just concepts that are built on the Psalms. Depending on how you count, there are over 100 quotations and many more allusions, by some counts up to 160, from the Psalms in the New Testament. When looking at Old Testament books that Jesus himself quotes, uh, there are four that he quotes the most. He quotes the book we've been going through most recently, before the Psalms, Exodus. Uh, He quotes Exodus seven times. He quotes Isaiah eight times. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy ten times. But do you know what book he quotes the most? The Psalms, right? He quotes the Psalms eleven times. And it's really not surprising because so many of the Psalms are songs that point directly to Jesus as he himself believed. Jesus taught, of course, that he is the priest king of Psalm 110. He is the cornerstone of Psalm 118. He is the suffering servant of Psalm 22. He even quoted from the Psalms as he was dying on the cross in agony. Now this is evidence in Jesus' life of an intimate love of and knowledge of the Psalms. And I believe that also can serve as a prescription for us for how we ought to let the Psalms influence our life. That e- even when we are suffering at our lowest point, we cry out the words of Scripture to help shape our lament. In fact, not only Jesus quoted from the Psalms, but almost every New Testament writer draws not just a little bit, but significantly from this beloved prayer book of God's people. You can put the not, nomad, not Monet painting back up for me there. There we go. Um, I found this pretty neat graph on the interwebs showing uh, this is the frequency of references to the Psalms in the New Testament. So you can see there's a lot of them. A lot of them in Romans. It's a little blurry there. A lot of them in Hebrews. We're going to talk a lot about Hebrews and Romans today because there's a ton of Psalm references uh, in, in those particular books And just as an aside, uh, I didn't make this graph. I'm not nearly that cool. Um, Also, believe it or not, I did not read the whole New Testament in preparation for this sermon. So uh, I should point out, I'm I'm relying a lot on other people's work today. Um, This graph, as well as, as some of the stats that I've just mentioned to you about the frequency of Psalms in the New Testament... Um, And assuming they are accurate, uh, they were put together by a guy named David Sanford. He works on the uh, Accordance Bible software website. And there's a lot of cool information there. This is not just me not plagiarizing, but also telling you it's a cool resource, AccordanceBible.com, if you're interested in learning more about that. Um, And that's a, you know, there's a lot, lot more than just the Psalms there. So as you can see visually represented here, the Psalms are ubiquitous in the New Testament. Um, if you have a physical copy of God's Word, uh, if you turn to any page of the New Testament uh, and you look at those cross-references that are along the bottom or along the side of those pages, um, maybe not on the very page you turn to first, but within a couple of pages, you'll find a reference to the Psalms because they're everywhere. You're almost guaranteed to find a Psalm reference if you read you know, any any bit of the New Testament. Interestingly, the most referenced verse of the Psalms in the New Testament is Psalm one ten one, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In fact, that verse is either directly referred to or alluded to 20 times in the New Testament because there's these references to either being seated at God's right hand, God making his enemies uh, his footstool, or both of those things together. And every time that that verse is referenced, the 20 times it's referenced in the New Testament, guess who is the one that's being seated at the right hand of God with his enemies as a footstool? It's Jesus, of course, right? He is the center of it all. It's not surprising, given what we discussed last week about Jesus and the Psalms. See, the seeds of truth, specifically about Jesus, sort of burst into full bloom in the New Testament, specifically because it's all about Jesus anyway. Isn't it amazing how the Bible is this one cohesive thing, even though it's a lot of different things? I mean, the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by 40 or so different authors. Um, They wrote on three different continents in three different languages over, depending on how you count, 1,500 or more years. And yet all of that combines to form this perfect, consistent message that culminates in Christ. Isn't it amazing how each of the books constantly quotes and refers to others within the Bible, forming this cohesive narrative of the most beautiful story of redemption that the world has ever known? I mean, if you need evidence that the Bible is divine, just read it. I mean, the Bible tells one beautiful story from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. God is telling the same story through the whole thing. And the center of it all is Jesus himself. So today, again, I want to look at how the Psalms shape the New Testament. And there's a lot of ways that you could tackle that. It took me a while to figure out the way that I wanted to do it for you today. But I decided to sort of categorize four general ways we see the Psalms as formative in the New Testament. And these are in no particularly uh, important order. But each of these really, if you read the New Testament, is self-evident. And the first way I want to look at that is that the Psalms shape New Testament doctrine or or New Testament theology. There's really countless examples. Well, I said there's 168. Uh, Yeah, so there's a lot of examples uh, of how the Psalms shape New Testament doctrine. But I want to highlight a few of those. For you today, so at the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew declares that Jesus is the Son of David, and then in Matthew's Gospel, he uses fifteen quotations from the Psalms to prove, or excuse, yeah, fifteen quotations from the Psalms throughout his Gospel to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Also, I want to tell you, there's going to be a ton of Scripture up here today. Don't feel like you got to, you know, get it all all down. Um, you know, you can if you want to jot down the references. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's probably more than you're going to want to write today. <laughs> Sorry, Morgan. Um, so Matthew starts that that sort of trend of referencing the Psalms, and then um, Peter also uh, allows the Psalms to shape his doctrine. In leading the disciples after Jesus's resurrection and his ascension, Peter appeals to the words of the Psalms when he recommends appointing another d- apostle to replace Judas, who of course had uh, betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide, he quotes two verses from the Psalms in Acts one twenty. He says, this is Peter, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. We see this with Paul's doctrine as well in the first chapter of Romans. And we talked about this a little bit with Dr. Miller a few weeks ago, but uh, when Paul describes the general revelation of God, I think that he clearly has uh, Psalm 19 in mind. Look at the sort of parallel here. Romans 1.20 says, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That kind of harkens back to Psalm 19.1 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This idea that the things that God has made reveal who He is. Now it's important that we that we also understand there that the things that God have made God has made are not who He is, but they declare who He is. That they point to the one who is greater than creation. Then, in writing about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not through works, Paul goes on. Um, in Romans to use Abraham to demonstrate that faith is what saves us. See, we always just quote Romans or Ephesians or Philippians. Well, Paul wrote those, so he had to refer back to something else that declared the very same truth. And so he uses Abraham to demonstrate that faith is what saves us. He uses the words of David from Psalm 32, 1 and 2 to show that even David and Abraham believed that we are justified by faith. Let me read to you from Romans 4. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. So we see that this doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, even in the Psalms. And then later, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 11 to quote Psalm 69 to demonstrate the spiritual blindness of Israel apart from Christ. Romans 11, 9 and 10, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. See, even Satan gets in on this idea of building doctrine on the the Psalms, although he does it poorly and he twists it uh, to make it say what he wants to say. Satan quotes Psalm 91 in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He says, uh, and he, Satan, took, to Jeru- took him to Jerusalem, took Jesus to Jerusalem, and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, here's Satan quoting the Psalms, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus claps back with more scripture. He answers him and says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And perhaps nowhere else in the New Testament are the Psalms as prevalent as I spoke to you about a few minutes ago in the book of Hebrews in which the writer of Hebrews quotes the Psalms 19 times with special emphasis on the superiority of Jesus Christ proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that He is both Lord and Savior. Hebrews chapter 1 quotes repeatedly from the Psalms most notably when the author quotes Psalm 45 in, in chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He goes on in chapter 2 to quote from Psalm 8 to describe Jesus as the founder of salvation. He says, it has been testified somewhere. And it's like, I think he's doing what we do. Like, I think the Bible says this somewhere. No, 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 It's it's Psalm 8 author of Hebrews, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but when we But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we see that the Psalms are very influential on the doctrine of New Testament believers, because after all, the Old Testament was all they had written down at the time, right? So they built their doctrine, the doctrine of God that has never changed on these verses, specifically in the, in the Psalms. So naturally, if the Psalms inspire New Testament doctrine, they will also inspire the proclamation of that doctrine. So secondly, today we see that the Psalms shape New Testament preaching. And I'm drawing a distinction there between doctrine and preaching because um, really this is, this is just the proclamation of it. There are many examples of New Testament preachers who are inspired by the Psalms. I just want to briefly look at three of those for you. The first one, surprise, Jesus. Jesus built a lot of his sermons on the Psalms. Uh, He drew from the Psalms frequently. He quotes from them with authority to teach his people. One clear example of this is when he invokes Psalm 110 to ask the religious believers who they believed he was. This is in Matthew 22. Starting in verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. See, that's, that's that most quoted one there. If then David calls him Lord... How was he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus stumped him there with Psalm 110. This discourse is also recounted in Mark and in Luke, with Jesus quoting Psalm 110.1 to ask this most simple but most profound question about the wonder of the incarnate Son of God, him. How could David refer to his son as Lord? And as we discussed in depth last week, the Psalms can only be fully understood if we understand their historical redemptive context. And Jesus demonstrates that David in Psalm 110 was affirming that the Messiah who would come after him from his descendants would be the one true Lord and eternal King. The one who would ultimately conquer every enemy, whose enemies would be put under his feet and he would stand victorious over them. Jesus also gives us another example of psalm-inspired preaching when he gives the Great Commission. Because I think he had Psalm 2.8 in view, which says, "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your your heritage, and the ends ends of the earth your possession.'" Compare that to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. that says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, in the Great Commission, Jesus is claiming the nations as his heritage. He's claiming to the ends of the earth This post-resurrection promise of God that he himself is the king who reigns forever and his kingdom will establish itself to the ends of the earth. After Jesus, we see this legacy of psalm-inspired preaching carried on through apostles like Peter. And we see the psalms in the preaching of Peter, most notably in his great uh, epic sermon to the multitude on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. I'm going to read part of that to you, a kind of lengthy part to you, where Peter quotes twice from the Psalms. This is Acts chapter 2, starting verse 22. Peter says, "...Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God." You've made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God was re- God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out, poured this poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says In Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Clearly, Peter understood, that David understood, that the Holy One, the one who would not be abandoned to Hades or see corruption, the one who would be seated on the throne of God forever, was not David, but the promised King, the coming Messiah, the Lord and Christ, Jesus. Amen. This tradition is carried on in the preaching of Paul. In fact, we see the very same Christ-centered themes present in the preaching of Paul as we dig with Peter, as he quotes the Psalms in his first evangelistic sermon in Acts chapter 13. Starting in verse 32, it says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption." Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, not only is separating the New Testament from, uh, or New Testament preaching from the Psalms impossible, but separating the Psalms from Christ is impossible. For he is the center of the whole narrative. And he also ought to be at the center of all preaching. May it be said of us, a vintage church, they sure do talk about Jesus a lot. Because he is the center of it all. So in addition to shaping doctrine and preaching in the New Testament, we also see the Psalms shape New Testament praying. And of course they would since it's a prayer book, right? A few weeks ago when Bryce taught us how to pray the Psalms, he was carrying on this ancient legacy, this scriptural tradition modeled by early believers. We see in Acts 4, after, and Peter, after Peter and John are arrested for preaching the good news that I just read to you that they, they spoke, then they are released, and the believers around them pray for boldness, invoking the Psalms. Acts 4 says when they were released, that's Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and, all the sea, and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... Man, this is good. Listen to this. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. See, when we pray these sort of bold prayers, declaring the eternal truth of God that He has already declared to us and revealed to us in His Word, the Holy Spirit then gives us boldness to proclaim the gospel. As he did with those early believers. That is still true for us today. Other sorts of New Testament prayers are inspired by the Psalms as well. Stephen showed us how the uh, Psalms of lament illustrate human heartache. And even Jesus let the Psalms shape his prayers of lament. In his lament over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13 he quotes Psalm 118. Luke 13, Jesus is praying and he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets or the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course... As we discussed last week, Jesus' great lament from the cross, His great cry of dereliction is an allusion to Psalm 22 when He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the Psalms not only provided words of prayer, specifically, like, they could read the Psalms and make them into prayers for New Testament believers and also for us today, but they also give us a model for how to pray. We need not avoid saying how we really feel, expressing the genuine emotions in our heart. But we are free to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. But at the same time, be pointed to Jesus who sustains us through it all. So we see the Psalms as the basis for doctrine and preaching and prayer in the New Testament. But lastly, I want to see how the Psalms shape New Testament worship. Now, a couple of examples to, of this uh, might come to mind if you've been around Vintage for a little while, specifically since uh, last Advent, when we uh, went through our Songs of Great Joy series leading up to the, birth of, uh, the celebration of the birth of Christ. See, when Mary, uh, uh, who Luke says was a virgin, pledged to be married to a descendant of David, when she breaks out in song, she repeatedly and effortlessly quotes the Psalms. And as we discussed in depth during that summer series last December, the Psalms in the New Testament draw inspiration heavily from Scripture, specifically from those Psalms. So when Mary learns she's pregnant, her song of response that we, that we looked at, uh, the Magnificat, it is saturated with references to the Psalms she had stored up in her heart. Let me read a few of those to you. Psalm 34, 2 and 3. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 126, 2 and 3. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Psalm 103, 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. In Psalm 107, 9, For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. If you read through Mary's song in Luke, you'll see all of those psalms directly referenced there. And even the form of her song, follows the common form of the psalms of thanksgiving, which begin by thanking God and then explaining why the, writer, uh, the songwriter is thankful. The same is true for another song we looked at in that series, the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke one 68 through 68-79, when Zechariah responds in song to the birth of his son in a song of prophetic worship. And again, his song was filled with references to the psalms from Psalm 41:13 Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel Psalm one hundred eleven nine, He sent redemption to his people 132:17 There I will make a horn to sprout for David Psalm 106:10 So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy and Psalm 105:8 He remembers his covenant forever the word that he commanded for a thousand generations This psalm-inspired worship doesn't stop with Mary or Zechariah or other ancient uh, Christmas hymns. In fact, in the early church, the apostles actively promoted the singing of the psalms when the church gathered for worship. Three different places were were commanded to do that. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 it says what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a has a hymn or psalm, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Then Ephesians five nineteen, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Church, it is right for us to give thanks and praise. And it is glorious for us to allow the psalms to saturate that thanks and praise, our worship of God, as we join in the ancient song of saints before us in praise to our God. In all four Gospels, we we also read another account of Psalms being used for worship. Psalm 118, during the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, where the people sang, Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118.25, which means, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And then they sang also from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then just four days after that, when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, to share the Passover feast with his friends, and to institute this holy meal that we know of as communion. The Bible says Jesus himself sang hymns with his disciples, as recorded in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. We don't know exactly what Jesus sang there, but traditionally the Passover hymns sung by the Jews were Psalms 113 to 118. And and looking through those can you imagine with me for a moment, first of all, Jesus singing with his friends. Jesus worshiping God the Father with his friends. Mere hours before he would pay in full the sin debt owed by all of humanity, knowing that he was about to suffer and die. Maybe the incarnate Son of God saying these words from Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Or maybe imagine with me Jesus singing from Psalm 118, from the very same passage that just four days earlier was used to worship him by the multitudes, knowing that it was a prophetic word about his impending death. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And of course, after singing those Passover hymns with his disciples, after giving the bread and the wine to his followers and praying in Gethsemane, Jesus was crucified and then he was raised from the dead. And then after his resurrection, when he appears to his disciples, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Josh talked last week about, they mentioned that their hearts burned within them. And I can just imagine the disciples having these these flashbacks to Jesus himself quoting Isaiah, and Jesus quoting Exodus, and quoting the Psalms, and then Luke twenty four thirty two says their heart burned within them as they came to the realization that not only is Jesus who he said he is, not only is Jesus risen from the dead, but he is so much more than they ever realized up until that very moment. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the giver of gifts in Psalm 68. He is the priest and king of Psalm 110. He is the stone that the builders rejected in Psalm 118. He is the sufferer of Psalm 22, whose hands and feet were pierced as he was smitten by God. As we let the Psalms wash over us as we let the Holy Spirit's power sanctify us through their precious words, may they, like all of Scripture and hopefully like everything that we do here in every part of our lives, fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. As we cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 71, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can take refuge in you. God, that you deliver and rescue. God, and that you are our rock of refuge. God, thank you that you decided before you even made us that you would save your people. God, and you have always been about the business of making that happen. God, when we read the Bible, may our hearts burn within us. God, as your Holy Spirit works on our hearts, Lord, as we we come to realizations about who you are, God, that it is all true and it has the power to influence our lives, Lord, to transform us. And God, may we not miss that Jesus is the center of it all. He is the only reason we have hope. God, he is our good shepherd and our great high priest. He is our savior and our rock. God, thank you that your word teaches us this grand story of redemption. God, and if you you have opened the eyes of our hearts, we can step into that story. God, if there's anyone here whose, whose eyes you are opening today, God, would you you reveal the truth of the gospel to them? God, that though we are all helpless and hopeless apart from you, God, that you have made a way to save us by sending your Son to die in our place. God, and if only we would trust in him and repent of our sins. God, you wash away all that sin. God, and you give us your Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. God, and you give us life that is abundant and eternal. Thank you for your love for us, God, for the great good news of the gospel. God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus today as we continue to worship him together. In Jesus' name.